Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're uh, awake and alive and ready for, uh, ready for the day. We've got a lot to cover today. Uh, let me just give you an indication of, of where we'll be going, uh, just in case you have time uh, to read ahead. There's quite a lot to cover. Um, later on this morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9 um, in our second session. And then um, later on in the day, uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at chapters 12 to 14 in a big block. Um, and it'll be helpful if you could at least have a glance at chapter 12. Uh, in fact, if you could skim the whole thing, that would be really useful. And tomorrow morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 15. And chapter 15 is a long chapter. And uh, it will be a... And actually, although we all know it's about... What's it about? The resurrection. We all know it's about the resurrection. But actually, there's a load of stuff in there that is not that familiar. So if you get a chance to read chapter 15 before tomorrow morning, uh, I think you'll find that really helpful. uh, Because we'll be going quickly through the whole of the chapter and trying to get the feel for the argument tomorrow morning. Well now, uh, welcome to those of you who've uh, come, just arrived, it's so nice to have you, and welcome to those of you who come today, it's really good to have you. Uh, yesterday we, uh, we learned um, two things about confectionery. Um, uh, we, had, uh, we learned that the, uh, <coughs> despite looking similar, these two uh, confectionery things are rather different. Uh, if you take the, uh, the plastic tube away from these uh, sweeties, they all scatter all o- over the floor in, in a, an assortment of random colours. Uh, and this, is, being a stick of rock, has an inner integrity that this does not have. 1 Corinthians is like this, not like this. It looks stripy and random. You know, one subject after another, after another, after another, apparently randomly assorted. It is not like this. It is like this. Running through 1 Corinthians is one issue. And it, it, it surfaces in many different ways and in many different symptoms of bad behavior. But there is one issue going on in this letter. And Paul's response to the Corinthians, although it looks like you know, a random assortment of responses to things he's heard about them, issues they've raised with him, is not at all random. It's a very, very carefully constructed letter. Um, As we'll uh, find out uh, today and tomorrow, interestingly, chapters 1 to 4, the first section, is all about the cross. Chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. That is not random. Cross at the beginning, resurrection at the end, and the rest in between. That is not random. It's quite deliberate. And although it looks random on the surface, it's a very, very carefully put together letter. And yes, Paul has heard information from the Corinthians. A bit from here, a bit from there, a bit from somewhere else. Yes, he's heard lots of different bits of information, but his response is put together in a very careful and thoughtful way. Now... If you remember, um, we learned last time, uh, last night, that Paul's testimony about Christ has provided great enrichment for the Corinthians. Look again at chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul talks about the grace of God that was given them in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge 
even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. What Paul means by this is, my gospel, my testimony about Christ, enriched you in every way. He told them about Christ, and the grace of God had been poured out on them, and they believed the gospel. As a result, they had great riches in all speech and all knowledge. But a few years later, just a few years later, after Paul's first visit, we find that they now, chapter 4, have all they want. At least they think they do. They have a new enrichment. Just look at that verse in 4 again, chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. They have a new enrichment, they think, that doesn't connect them to the Apostle Paul. That's separate from him. They think they've moved on. And the main thing that they don't like about what they had before is that it ties them into Paul. It makes them feel dependent on him. And the big issue that runs all the way through this letter is the Corinthians' distaste for Paul's pattern of life and ministry. It runs all the way through the letter. Basically, they don't really want to be identified with an apostle like this one who lives a life like his and has the status that he has. Because they think themselves superior to that, above that, Uh, not wanting to join in with him. And that's the thing that makes this letter the way it is. They don't like the cross-shapedness of Paul's way of doing things. Now this morning we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to explore a bit further the the symptoms of this Corinthian disease. Uh, And second, we're going to look a bit at how Paul begins to remedy that disease. Uh, For the symptoms, we'll spread ourselves uh, fairly widely. Uh, For the remedy, we'll look at that reading that we uh, already looked at in in chapter 1 and 2. Question. What does distaste for the cross-shaped life really look like when you see it? I wonder if uh, anybody remember the the, the swine flu epidemic a few years ago? Remember the swine flu epidemic? Anybody get swine flu? No, not really, no. It it didn't quite turn out the way it had been uh, feared that it would turn out. Uh, It gripped the news cycle for weeks and weeks and weeks, if you remember at the time. Uh, And personally, I think it was just the name, swine flu. Sounds nasty, doesn't it? Um, The truth is that for most people who got it, most people who got it, despite its scary name, swine flu was a pretty minor illness, really bit of coughing, bit of sneezing, a few aches and pains, not feeling very well for a few days. I went to uh, my GP uh, during the swine flu epidemic and it said on the door outside, if you think you you have swine flu, don't come in here. And that is about as much sympathy as you're going to get from somebody who really knows what swine flu is like. You might think it's a problem. The only really real problem for your GP would be if you gave it to him. Sometimes a problem sounds very dramatic and unusual from a distance, but up close it doesn't look so unusual. And I think the Corinthian letter is just like that. 
They don't like the cross-shaped life of the Apostle Paul. Well, that sounds grim. You look at the letter and you see all sorts of weird and wonderful goings-on at Corinth. And you think, well, that looks extreme and strange. But when you get close to the letter and inside it, the chief symptom of the Corinthian disease is basically unremarkable. And it's this. It is division. The chief symptom of the Corinthian disease their distaste for the apostles' way of life, is division. Division among Christians, is that unusual? No, it is not unusual. It's everyday and ordinary. Now we're going to explore that for a little while and see why it's there and learn how Paul deals with it. Um, Let me say that this dividedness operates at different levels in this letter. Um, And we're going to uh, start with the most obvious level, which is where Paul starts in the letter. Uh, They're divided among one another. Let me read 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, literally, that you all say the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Kephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This first example of dividedness that he chooses to focus on is division about which Christian leader they like the best. Now, it's not the only issue that there are internal divisions about in this letter. Uh, I've given you in the heading some other examples, chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 12. In chapter 6, they take one another to court publicly. They are divided against one another in ways they ought not to be. In chapter 11... They are divided, probably along socioeconomic lines, about who gets the food and who doesn't get the food at the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, they are divided between themselves about who has one gift, especially the gift of speaking in tongues, and who doesn't. That causes a division among them. So there are loads of different divided from one another divisions in 1 Corinthians. But here in chapter 1, it's which Christian leader we like best. That's the division. And four are mentioned, one of whom is Christ. Interesting, by the way, that Paul and Kephas and Apollos and Christ can be mentioned as though they're in one sense competing factions. There's something lacking there, isn't there? But the list of four in chapter 1 rapidly through chapters 1 to 4 becomes a short list of two. Do you notice that? Very quickly he moves from the four in chapter 1 to the two in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Paul and Apollos are the two in particular that are in focus here. Uh, The Paul and Apollos thing is the thing, is the thread that holds chapters 1 to 4 together. 
Um, let me read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> Again, I said yesterday, do you remember I said that the, the, his first visit was a very important issue in this letter? Well, here we find it again in chapter 1. He's back to the first, sorry, chapter 3. He's back to the first visit. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people when I came to you the first time, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. For you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving merely humanly? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. By chapter 3, the division is between Paul and Apollos. One loves one, one loves another. And Paul says, yeah, we're different. One plants one waters, but we're both servants, and God is the important one who makes things grow. Uh, turn on to four, chapter six. So, chapter four, verse six. Again, we're still in the Paul and Apollos thing. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another for who sees anything different in you what do you have that you did not receive etc what's so special about you corinthians that you think you can sit in judgment over which of god's workmen is more important that's the question he's asking what's so important about you corinthians that you think you can make judgments about which of the workmen that God has chosen is the most important workman for you. Do you see that? God is the one who makes such judgments, not Corinthians. Now, with that Paul and Apollos thing in mind, uh, turn back to Acts chapter 18, because here we meet Paul and Apollos and their ministries in Corinth. Acts chapter 18. Both Paul and Apollos have been very significant in Corinth. <clears throat> First part of the chapter discusses Paul's visit to Corinth. And then chapter, uh, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. Competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers accompanied him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. 
for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, notice a, a couple of things. Apollos in Corinth is a real, raw new believer. At this point, he knows only the. Uh, um, when he comes to Ephesus, he knows only John's baptism, and he's put straight by uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila, and then he goes to uh, Corinth, and he's very useful there, having been put right by them. He's a new boy, but he's very fervent, and he knows the scriptures, and he knows how to dialogue with Jews, and Jews are hostile in Corinth. So it's a big deal that he's there. He's been very useful. Notice how powerfully effective his public ministry in Corinth is as uh, according to Acts now I'm being slightly speculative here but not too speculative I think I think it may well be the case that Apollos was a more dynamic grabby looking forceful looking public speaker than Paul was that, that is brought out in a number of ways in that narrative. He's powerfully effective publicly in refuting the hostile Jewish uh, opponents. I wonder if uh, that is possible, I wonder if it's possible that that was partly due to his relative immaturity. Not quite as careful maybe as the Apostle Paul is. Because as we learned yesterday, and we'll see again later on today, the Apostle seems to have shaped the way he talked in a particular way for the Corinthian audience. Apollos gets there and wallop. He's into the Jews in public. And he's very useful to the Corinthians. And when you get to 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians love Apollos. They think he's very dynamic, I think, and very impressive. And it may be that his powerful refutations of the opponent's just pushed the Corinthian buttons in ways that Paul's lower key, not quite so impressive thing, didn't push their buttons. And I think that's why Paul and Apollos are the kind of link through chapters 1 to 4. What does Paul say? We're just servants, both of us. But that's not quite what the Corinthians think. I think they think that one is better than the other. I think a good bunch of them think that Apollos is just more impressive than Paul. And they like a good speaker in Corinth. Culturally, they like a good speaker in Corinth. Do you see the issue? Do you see the fit between those? Paul answers. 1 Corinthians 1.13 Back to 1 Corinthians 1. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why, oh why, are you squabbling about which Christian leader is the best when you all belong to the leader, the Lord Jesus Christ? That sort of human-based division just fundamentally lacks perspective. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. 
Paul, Apollos, Christ. Where's the debate in a list like that about who's most impressive? Now let's uh, yank this into the present age from uh, first century Corinth. Uh, There's little doubt that in the last few decades of evangelicalism in the UK, there has been significant division defined by which Christian leader one follows. And one wonders whether the current ability to hear your favorite speaker online at the click of a button doesn't perpetuate that sort of Christian leader focus in really unhelpful ways. I follow Keller. I follow Driscoll. I follow Piper. Good as the brothers are. In Corinth, the unhealthy preoccupation with which leader we fancy is accompanied by an unhealthy diminution of the Lord Jesus in their eyes. You see, their eyes are on the human and not on their Lord. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Chapter 3, verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being mere humans, earthbound? It's just so unspiritual to do that, he says. And of course, they think it's so spiritual because they're going for the spiritual looking one. Turn over to chapter 16, right over to the end of the letter. Uh, I mentioned yesterday that the end, the little apparently random looking bits at the end of Paul's letters are often very, very important in rounding up and tying together and um, applying the big issues of the letter. Well, look at 1622. I'll start reading at 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's all very human and personal, isn't it? I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, isn't that an interesting thing to drop in at that point? It's a big statement that, isn't it? Let the person who has no love for the Lord be accursed. A little bombshell in the middle of all that human and friendly stuff. And this is the issue. Who do the Corinthians love? Paul? Apollos? Or the Lord? That's the question. With their eyes on the human leader, do they really love the Lord? They're divided among one another in this way. And of course, in many other ways, in many other ways, there are lots of interpersonal divisions in this letter. Okay, now let me give you another example of the dividedness in this letter. They find themselves divided from Christians everywhere else. The Corinthians think they're terribly special in the whole Christian scene. Uh, Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Remember, the beginning of the letter is very important. What's unusual about this beginning? You'll be familiar with Paul's beginnings. 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And you read that and you think, well, it's just standard Paul greeting, you know, and you skim over. But what's in there that isn't usually found in Paul's letters? Anyone? Well, he he often starts with thanksgiving. There certainly is thanksgiving there. He often starts with that. What's unusual in there? Yes, the mention of together with all people everywhere. Do you see that? Called to be saints... That, again, is a fairly common bit in Paul's introduction, but called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Do you see how he's joining them in with everyone everywhere who belongs to the Lord Jesus? Now, it would seem that the Corinthians think themselves different from Christians in other places. And this letter is peppered with little reminders that what Paul is preaching to the Corinthians, he's also taught to everyone, everywhere. Again, if you read the letter through quickly, you'll find yourself bumping into this all the time. So look, for example, at chapter 4, verse 17. Turn on to 4.17, please. We looked at this briefly yesterday. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, unlike some of you, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy is going to exemplify for you the lifestyle that is every Christian's lifestyle, not one that you can opt out of. Do you see that? Everyone, everywhere. Uh, look at 7.17. Turn on to 7.17. Now, we're not going to look at chapter 7 in our, at least you, you can bring it up in questions. By all means, ask questions about any part of 1 Corinthians in the question time if you want to. Very happy to go there. Uh, chapter 7 is, um, at least on the surface, about stuff to do with marriage and sex and relationships and divorce and all that kind of stuff. But 7.17 kicks us into a wider view. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Again, he's broadening the argument out here. I teach this everywhere. Not just to you. Uh, I think the big issue in chapter 17 is the pressure to change one's status in life in order to look more spiritual. I think there's pressure in Corinth to abstain from sex in marriage because that's more spiritual, to divorce from your non-Christian partner because that's more spiritual, and so on. I I think the big driver in chapter 7 is what makes us look more spiritual? And Paul says... I teach Christians everywhere that basically you're to get on with life in the situation that you were when God saved you. If you're married, it's not more spiritual not to be married. If you're single, it's not more spiritual not to be single. If you're involved in a married sexual relationship, it is not more spiritual to opt out of sex and marriage. Do you see that? 
And he says, I teach that everywhere, not just to you. Uh, Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Here we get on to a very practical matter, which interestingly ties the Corinthians into Christians elsewhere. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Here is a collection for Christians in another place in need. And the instructions that the Corinthians receive are exactly the same as the instructions the Galatians receive. Would the Corinthians like a special set of Corinthian instructions? Too right they would. Do they get them? No. Everybody gets the same instructions. Do you see? The Corinthians are to do just like all the other churches are to do. They're no different. That, I think, is about what the greetings are about in, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter 16. He's tying the Corinthians into Christians elsewhere. All the time he does that in this letter. Again and again, all the way through this letter, he says to the Corinthians, you guys are no different from any Christian anywhere. Get used to it. Get over yourselves. Now, this is a huge issue in this letter. The Corinthians just instinctively assume that they are superior spiritually. It never crosses their mind for a second that they might be the same as everyone else who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It just genuinely, I don't think, crosses their minds. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look at that again, please. Chapter 1, verse 5. They would have loved... In every way, you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Superior in speech, superior in knowledge, superior in spirituality. The Corinthians think that's a great idea. Of course they agree with him. But they don't think it came to them, verse 6, through Paul's message. And they don't think that that's true of Christians elsewhere. They think they're different. They think they're better. They think they're more spiritual. They just instinctively assume it. They're divided from Christians elsewhere. Now, brothers and sisters, can I just observe it? It's very common for Christians to think, yes, there are real believers all over the place. But if they were really together, they'd belong to my group. They'd think what I think. If I knew as little as they knew, then I'd be where they are. But knowing what I know, they would be where I am. Isn't it just dead easy to think like that? That's precisely what Paul is combating here. This instinctive, if they were as clued up as I am, they'd belong to my group and they'd recognize that that stuff over there was rubbish, really. Isn't that easy to think that? I find I think that like that all the time instinctively. I have to work not to think that. That's what Paul's combating here. They think they're better. They know better. They're more spiritual. That stuff over there, well, it's maybe for children, but this is the big deal. They're divided from Christians elsewhere. Uh, third, they're divided from reality, which is uh, slightly more dangerous. Uh, chapter 4, verse 8. I said this division was multi-layered, and it is multi-layered. 
already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without just you've become kings. Well, if only that were true, says Paul. If only that were the case. The Corinthians are self-deceived. They think things about themselves which are just not true. They think they are the uber-rich spiritually. They think they are reigning spiritually. They think they've moved on from their apostles spiritually. And he says, yeah, right. If only that were true. They see themselves a different way, but they are wrong about that. Now, can I say that there's a great deal of self-deception around, and not just in Corinth, but in Christianity generally. You'll see it in everyday evangelicalism all the time. This is how I think the Christian life should be. Therefore, this is what it really is like for me, even though, obviously, it's not what it really is like for me. The Christian life is victorious. I am victorious. The real Christian should be happy and prospering. So I am happy and prospering because I must be. The Christian life should be healthy, so my disease must have been cured. It really must. The Christian life is a life of sinless perfection. That's not such a common one in our own age, but it was very common in a previous age. So that's what I have, sinless perfection, even though if you ask their wife or children, they might disagree with that. The situations that we're nourished in shape our expectations about the Christian life and often the situations in which we're nourished in have unrealistic views usually more optimistic than reality about what the Christian life is really like and there's a tremendous amount of pretending therefore goes on amongst Christians we believe in sin in general Do we believe in sin in general as Christians? Yes, we do. When we find somebody behaving badly in our congregations, do we talk talk about sinfulness and bad behavior? Well, so often we just avoid it as though it's not really there. We believe in sin as a concept, but we don't have a practical um, doctrine of bad behavior. We are... Sin doesn't happen here. Yes, we believe it happens in the world out there, but not here. So we don't deal with it when it's here because we can't deal with it because it can't be here because we're better than we think. We think we're better than we really are. Do you know? Do you see what I mean? It's so easy to pretend. My relationship with the Lord, I'm taught, is supposed to be real and active and vibrant all the time, and everything's supposed to be good all the time. So I have to put on my happy face when I come to church on Sunday even though I feel like I don't belong here this morning because of what I've been struggling with this week. I find that a very common one in church. I used to find as a minister that people would wander up to me after church, you know, in that kind of downtime after the the formal bits open, uh, uh, done. And after the kind of initial, hello, how are you? They kind of say something like, you know, I just wish I were a better Christian. You know, something like that. At which point, I uh, got into the habit of saying, you know, sometimes I come here on sun- a Sunday morning and I think to myself, if these people knew what I've been struggling with this week, 
they would not want to listen to me teaching them the Bible. Interestingly, every time I've said that, there has been a huge, oh, thank goodness, sigh of relief in the other person. Because that is precisely how they feel. And do you not all feel that? Don't you? Do you come to church thinking, I belong here with these people? Well, you do. But don't you come to church thinking, these people are all better than me? Don't you think that? Every time. Why? Because we pretend that it's better than it really is right now. So we have to be better. So we can't talk about what it's really like. And everybody comes to church on a Sunday morning having had terrific struggles with their sinful nature and the difficulties of life this week. And they have to put on their happy face when they come in the door. Because they think it's supposed to be better than it really is. Well, the Corinthians are an extreme example of that. They really seriously think they're better than everyone else. And that the Christian life is better than it really is. They're divided from reality. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, the uh, famous uh, Victorian preacher, lived in an age where the sinless perfection thing was very common. And um, uh, his response to somebody uh, one day who uh, asserted that he'd lived a life of uh, no conscious sinfulness for the last few years was to walk straight up to him and place his considerable weight right on his toe really hard and see what happened. Sinless perfection is only, you know, uh, skin deep. When you step on the toe, other things come out. Sometimes a brutal response like that is what's necessary to wake people up to reality. And Paul's rebuttal here in chapter 4 is fairly, fairly brutal. You become kings? Yeah, right. I wish you had. I could be a king too if you'd become kings. But that's not the way it is. Divided from reality. Fourth, They're divided from the world. Now, chapter 1, verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those (coughs) sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, that implies that they're supposed to be different from the world, doesn't it? Set apart from the world to be the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in fact, they are different from the world in entirely the wrong way. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Yes, the Corinthian behavior is different from the world. It is noticeably worse than the world's. The world around looks in at what's going on in the church in Corinth and goes, good grief what's going on in there. And one of the issues is that the Corinthians have such a strong sense of the freedoms that they enjoy in Christ that they feel themselves free to do things that the world around does not feel itself free to do. The Corinthians are worse than Corinthian culture because of what they think are their theological freedoms. Now, we can't go into this in enormous detail. You might want to chase up some of those other verses uh, that I've written in the heading. But uh, safe to say that the stuff that's going on in the Corinthian church, in chapter 5, sexual immorality, in chapter 6, 
taking one another to court. Uh, in chapter 11, uh, various things to do with the way with me- that men and women relate. Uh, these things make the world... Uh, in chapter 14, they're speaking in tongues. These things make the world around go, what's going on in there? And that for Paul is a big issue. Can I say for the moment that there different behavior in church is theologically driven this is a subtle thing for they take the truth that Paul has given them namely that they are spiritual now and are free now but develop that true truth in directions that Paul is not happy with them developing it free for the Corinthians that means free to do anything No constraints. We're above, we're more spiritual than the world around us, than churches everywhere. And Paul wants to bring them down with a bang. You are not different from people everywhere. And you are not supposed to behave differently in that way from the world around. For that's enormously damaging for the gospel witness. And that is a big concern in this letter. The things going on in the church make the world outside look in and say, Good grief, if that's what it does for people, I'm not listening to that for a second. And that's one of Paul's great concerns in this letter. What's going on in the church is making the outside's world's draw drop, drop in shock at what's going on. We wouldn't do that. Why are they doing that? Now let me say that this false dividedness is an issue on many levels. They're divided about which teacher they fancy. They're divided relationally between themselves. They're divided from the world outside. They're divided from reality. They're divided from other Christians everywhere. Division of many sorts is woven all the way through this letter. How does Paul deal with it? Well, uh, we'll look at the, uh, chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1, please, and we'll look at this for a few minutes uh, before we close. Paul's cure, in many and various ways, is to rub their noses in the truth about Jesus and the truth about themselves. He makes them face reality in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. What he means here is, consider what you were like when you were called to belong to the Lord. Think where you've come from. That's what he's saying. Remember what you were when the gospel came to you. That's what he's saying. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, namely you, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, namely you, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, namely you. Even things that are not so small you can hardly even notice them, namely you. To bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
He is the source of your life in Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in himself, is what the Corinthians do. Boast in the Lord is what Paul wants them to do. Do you see what he's doing? He shows, remember what you were like. Boast in the Lord then, not in you. Now, I think this remember what you were thing must have been enormously painful for the Corinthians to do. It is the last thing they want to do. But the point that Paul makes is that there was nothing very good about the Corinthians before they were saved. And Paul says, it's changed. But what has changed? Well, what has changed is their relation to Jesus, not themselves. Verse 27 to 29. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the weak. God chose what is low and despised in the world. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Their relationship to Jesus has changed. God has done something. That's what makes the Corinthians new and special and spiritual. Not what they're like in themselves. Uh, let me illustrate. Uh, sorry, before I do that, the reason that God has done that is verse 30 to bring to nothing things that are. Verse, uh, sorry, verse 28 to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 27 to, to shame the strong. Uh, God has done what he's done with you, Corinthians, to overturn normal human ways of evaluating people. Let me illustrate. Uh, I wonder if you remember back to the school playground and the uh, rather painful business, painful for most people anyway, of choosing teams in football or netball or whatever it happened to be for you. Uh, It always happens the same way. The supremos are the captains of the teams, are they not? The two best guys in football are the, always the captains of the, of the playground lunch, uh, football teams. And they choose. Who do they choose? Well, they choose number three and number four, the next best guys at football. They always do that. And if they choose you fairly early on in the choosing business, it means they rate you as a player, which is just Cool, is it not? To be within the first lot. And the ones at the end of the list, where I always was at football, are chosen very reluctantly. Not because you want them on your team, but just because they have to be in the game. God does it differently. He chooses really rubbish players for his team to upset the good ones. That's what Paul's saying here. He chooses really rubbish people in the world to upset the things the world values. He does it quite deliberately. It's part of the way he does stuff. When God chooses the team, the universe stands back and scratches his head and thinks, what? What is he doing there? Why is he choosing that lot of people? And the thing that changes most fundamentally is simply that God chooses people. They're not suddenly better people. Look at verse um, 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, 
whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You haven't become a more valuable or special or splendid person, have you, since you became a Christian? Have you, really? You haven't. The thing that God has done is chosen you and joined you to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's different. It's not you that's different. It's your relation to Christ that's different if you're a Christian. Christians sometimes pray, dear Lord, I was once, but now. And of course, there's a truth in that. But basically, I was once, and I'm still much the same. (laughs) It's my relation to Jesus that has changed. Joined to his person now. Joined to his team now. And along with that, God generously gives to us all the things that flow so richly from his son. But it's him that's the difference, not me. And it's him that's the difference, not the Corinthians. God is not overjoyed that the Corinthians have decided to join his team because that makes his team so much better. No, that's not the way it works. It's God that makes the difference to the Corinthians. So the Corinthians are supposed to boast in him, not in themselves. Think of what you were, Corinthians, and wise up. You weren't that special. God has chosen you. And, and secondly, <clears throat> think of what I did, 2, 1 to 5. We looked at this again uh, last night, so briefly this evening. Think of what I did when I came to you. And basically, Paul argues in this section, when I arrived in Corinth, you weren't anything special. And when I arrived in Corinth, I didn't do anything special. That's what he says. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't particularly eloquent. I decided my decision to be not particularly eloquent was a deliberate one, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My speech and my message were not impressive, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. I think he deliberately matched his speaking style to a proud culture. Not to impress it. And so that they trusted God and not him. And the two go together, don't they? If you're coming to a proud culture, you need to speak in ways that don't flatter them. And Paul didn't flatter the Corinthians. And he's not flattering them now either, is he? Remember what you were like? Not that special, really. Now, uh, time is gone. Let me close with a couple of reflections. First, uh, let me close with a reflection on the means that God uses to accomplish his work. I was converted as a student uh, in a university mission, and the speaker at the university mission was Billy Graham, the American evangelist. And he'd been to speak at another university uh, just beforehand. And I understand that he came, uh, before he came to the university I was at, he said, he asked, uh, he asked, Uh, he asked questions about how he should be how he should what kind of way he should speak and uh, very wisely he was advised by the CU committee just tell people the gospel don't think that because they come from a a fancy university don't think that because they come that, that because they're clever don't think that because uh 
you know, uh, English university culture is sometimes somewhat elitist. Don't think you need to treat them specially because of that. I was converted on the first evening of that mission. It was a very, very ordinary gospel talk on John 3.16. It was, I have to say, looking back on it, in every way possible, unremarkable. It wasn't specially eloquent. It wasn't filled with fancy and clever and intellectually stimulating illustrations. It was John 3.16 gospel the kind of stuff you'll hear all over the world in all sorts of situations. Now, the character of the man shone through. That was absolutely the case. But the message was ordinary. And at the end of it, I said, yeah, that's true. I must do something about that. And so did hundreds of other students. Very interesting that, isn't it? We think, don't we, that the things that God will use evangelistically have to fit with the culture we live in. To be clever, fancy, attractive, entertaining. And we think that that is the ticket to gain people's attention. Well, it's not what Paul did in Corinth. Now, can I say... We'll get on to chapter 8 and 9 later on today. And we'll, it's not simply that Paul was awkward and stupid and blunt and didn't make allowances for a Corinthian culture. Absolutely he did. We'll find in chapter 8 and 9 that he's very careful in adapting himself appropriately to the culture he comes to. This is not a simple thing. But what he's saying in chapter 1 is, I did not flatter you. I did not assume that the thing that would change you was me giving you all the things you like. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to do that and to put your confidence in the gospel and in God and not in all the things you dress the gospel up in to make it palatable. I don't think, I'm not saying you oughtn't to work carefully at how to get a proper listening. Of course you ought, and we'll think about that in chapter 8 and 9. But God uses the gospel message, and basically everybody's pretty much the same. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter how clever they are, there are many th- most things about people are pretty much the same. Second, can I make an observation about being Corinthian? One of the dangers of this letter is that you look at this letter and think, oh, these guys are mad. (laughs) Where's the point of contact between me and them? But when you look at the symptoms, they're much more everyday and ordinary, aren't they? Dividedness. Dividedness from other Christians. Dividedness from one another. Dividedness from reality. Living a a dreamy kind of Christian existence dividedness from the world, different from the world in all the wrong ways. Their love of knowledge, of that which looks impressive, their measuring of one another by appearances, their unthinking sense of superiority to other Christians, knowing better, speaking better. The truth is, brothers and sisters, you do not have to look Corinthian to be Corinthian. They look different from us. But you don't have to look Corinthian to be Corinthian. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray together.
Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Gracious God, so often our eyes are on ourselves. The things we have, the people we are, the abilities we think we possess, the activity we engage in. So often we think uh, that it's a great privilege for us to be on your team. And we pray uh, that you'd help us to stop thinking like that. We, we uh, recognize that we're just the same as everybody everywhere. Our sinfulness is just as deep, our pride just as large, uh, our need just as great. Uh, we pray that you'd help us therefore to boast in you and we pray that you'd help us uh, not to think that uh, we need to dress the gospel message up in fancy ways for the hearer. Help us to do what Paul does, to, to be real and to speak about you to real people. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.